Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, May 19th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Four months after a fatal insurrection at the United States Capitol building, a major inquiry into the events of January 6th could now be in jeopardy. Congressional Republicans vowing to vote down that investigation. Now in its second week, the conflict between Israel and Hamas is turning into a humanitarian disaster. Residents in Gaza facing shortages of fuel and water, with more than 200 now dead. And a major milestone in the fight against COVID-19, the U.S. now reporting 60% of the population here has received at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine, including 4 million teenagers now at least partially inoculated. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin on Capitol Hill, where Senate Republicans are signaling that they will try to block a Democratic effort to create a 9-11-style commission investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Their opposition threatening any chances of a deeper, independent look at the siege and steps toward preventing similar violence in the future. Edwin Pitti joins us with details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Andrea, Republicans are not only blocking the creation of this 9-11-style commission, but also a $1.9 billion bill that would help pay for costs related to the attacks respond and to improve security at the Capitol building. According to House Democrats in the Rules Committee, the work of the commission would be to look into Trump's action and scrutinize the Capitol's attack by a mob of Donald Trump's supporter. The Democratic-backed proposal already approved by the House Rules Committee will be voted on the floor today, but Kevin McCarthy, the top House Republican, announced his opposition. Meanwhile, in the Senate, Republican leader Mitch McConnell said today that he will oppose the legislation, a completely blow to Democrats. Meanwhile, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pledged to bring the legislation up for a vote. Take a listen. Um, we'll see what the House vote is like, but I want to be clear. I will put the January 6th commission legislation on the floor of the Senate for a vote, period. Republicans can let their constituents know, are they on the side of truth, or do they want to cover up for the insurrectionists and for Donald Trump? Going back to the House, GOP sources are saying they believe more than 20 members of their party will vote yes to the creation of the 10-person bipartisan independent panel. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, said she was disappointed but not surprised over the cowardice shown by some Republicans who do not want to find the truth. And in a statement, former President Donald Trump responded by urging Republicans not to approve the commission, calling it, quote, just more partisan unfairness. Reporting live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, reporting from D.C. Elsewhere on Capitol Hill, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer led a signing ceremony today for legislation to combat the growing threat of anti-Asian violence in this country. Incidents of those attacks increasing since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. The COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act passed the House yesterday by a vote of 364 to 62. All of the no votes came from Republicans. 
Republicans. President Joe Biden previously voiced support for the bill, which soared through the Senate last month with a 94-1 vote. The legislation calls for creating a new Justice Department position that would speed up the review of possible COVID-19-based hate crimes and incidents. And this week, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to take up Mississippi's bid to revive a state law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. By hearing the case in their next term, the justices will look at whether to overturn a central part of the landmark, Roe v. Wade, ruling which said that states could not ban abortion before the viability of the fetus outside of the womb, which is generally viewed by doctors as anywhere between 24 and 28 weeks. The Mississippi law, on the other hand, would ban abortion much earlier than that. Joining me now to discuss the impact of this decision is Anne-Marie Benitez. She's with the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. Thanks so much for being with us today, Anne-Marie. Welcome to You News. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you for having me. What was your reaction to the Supreme Court deciding to hear this case? Yes, at National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice, we were alarmed by the Supreme Court's decision to take on this 15-week abortion ban case that was started in Mississippi. And we know that the battle for reproductive justice will not be won in the courts, but in our communities. We have been seeing, um, since Roe started, a slow, slow picking away of Roe v. Wade. In fact, one of those very first examples happened just a couple of years after Roe v. Wade, when Congress rolled out the Hyde Amendment, which blocks Medicaid from federal funds to cover abortion care, denying access to million, millions of people with low incomes, and most of them people of color. And we've seen that these and those kinds of attacks not only at the national level, but also at state level. So this is something that we have been seeing on the ground since Rose, since SCOTUS, since the Supreme Court enacted and enforced Roe v. Wade. And as a, as a Latina community, we know that there is no choice without access. What good is the right to an abortion without the means to obtain care? So this is a fight that we have been fighting for a very, very long time and will continue to fight. Mississippi is asking to be allowed to ban most abortions at the 15th week of pregnancy. Why are supporters of abortion rights alarmed that this decision could overturn Roe versus Wade? I think what's really important here is to recognize that our communities, people of color the, um, and black individuals and the indigenous community and the Latina community, we have been disproportionately impacted by abortion bans that we have seen consistently for decades at the state level. And as a community, we already face existing barriers to access to healthcare, especially to access to abortion. So for example, our communities work in areas where you have no healthcare or you have multiple jobs um, or you have no health insurance and our communities are underserved. So that is why uh, as an advocate for abortion access, while the case being picked up by the Supreme Court is a surprise to us, um, this fight is not new to us. And it is a fight that we have continued to work along with, alongside with many coalition partners to fight 
um, not only what we potentially may see in the Supreme Court, but also the state restrictions that we are seeing time and time again that negatively impact our communities. And Maria, a number of polls consistently suggest that a majority of residents here in the U.S. continue to favor keeping the Roe versus Wade decision on the books anywhere between 61 percent to 69 percent, depending on the poll. Could there be political consequences to the overturning of that decision? I'm referring to Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that you, those polls are also consistent within the Latina, Latinx community. We also are very strong supporters of abortion, overwhelmingly in the majority. Uh, so we know that this is going to definitely harm our communities. Our communities are watching and we are going to be fighting hard to ensure that our access to abortion, our access to health care, regardless of where we are, where we live and our immigration status, we will continue to fight for our right to have this access to abortion care. Earlier today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a ban on abortions as early as six weeks. Several other states had already made similar moves. What do you make of the timing of all this? Yes, thank you very much for raising that. He just signed the bill earlier today. Um, since the early 2000s, there's been state restrictions happening and they continue to increase. And this is a time in which our communities have been severely impacted by COVID. And if anything, COVID demonstrated to us as a community, provided a spotlight of what it means when uh, there's limited access to healthcare. And we firmly believe abortion is part of healthcare access. In fact, a lot of our communities primarily uh, receive our care from clinics that are like Planned Parenthood's or Title X clinics. So when you eliminate that access, when you create restrictions, when you do that and you think it's only about abortion, it actually impacts our health care, our dignity mm -hmm. and our respect. And that is why this kind of bans negatively impacts our families in such a tremendous way. And that is why our communities know that and are going to continue to fight that. And we're going to be demanding that of Congress of our state legislators and of our governors. We want to know, we want the people in Texas to know, however, that abortion is still legal. And we want that to be understood and very loud and clear. And we're gonna to continue to be fighting this uh, in every means possible. Thank you, Anne-Marie Benitez of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us. Have a great day. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. And another major story we're tracking today, the Trump Organization is now facing a criminal investigation. New York Attorney General Letitia James said her office is investigating former President Trump's businesses for potential criminal wrongdoing. That office now joining the Manhattan District Attorney's probe. At issue is whether the Trump Organization used misleading information to get loans and tax benefits. The former president has called the attorney general's investigation, quote, politically motivated. We turn next to the escalating conflict between Israel and Hamas. The ongoing fighting now in its 10th day as pressure builds for a ceasefire. 
Israeli flags drape the ruined facades of buildings in Ramat Gan just outside Tel Aviv, clearing rubble after a rocket turned this residential street into chaos. We heard a few like really loud uh, landings. We saw the mess, like this whole place was just in ruins and people were screaming. You just can never really tell if when something's gonna happen. The conflict between Israel and Hamas now entering its second week, 24 hours after President Biden expressed his support for a ceasefire in a phone call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There are reports Hamas has offered conditions for a ceasefire, but Israel is vowing to fight on. Israel dropping more than 100 bombs on dozens of Hamas targets, saying they have thousands more to destroy. The situation in Gaza is critical. Millions facing vanishing supplies of electricity, fuel and clean water. So far, at least 213 people have been killed there. This man says, we don't have any electricity or Internet or water or anything. What should we do? Hamas also firing rockets into Israel. This, as Palestinians across the region called a general strike, shops shuttered in parts of Jerusalem. And in Washington, D.C., pro-Palestinian protesters also gathered outside the Israeli embassy. In Detroit, Michigan, the only Palestinian-American member of Congress, Democrat Rashida Tlaib, had a notable tarmac conversation with President Biden. Tlaib has previously been critical about Biden's stance toward Israel and is asking that Palestinians be protected. Meanwhile, Egypt, a big regional player between the Israelis and the Palestinians, added its voice to calls for a ceasefire. Egyptian foreign minister said his country is pledging money, $500 million towards rebuilding Gaza. Uh, close consultations with uh, the Israelis, with the Palesti Palestinians Authority, with Hamas, uh, and uh, have uh, reassurances uh, that uh, it, uh, the Palestinians are eager to uh, uh, resolve this uh, escalation. Overall, the feeling on the streets is of fear and frustration with no end in sight. White House suggests that making public calls for a ceasefire would not be constructive. The United States ambassador to the U.N. also echoed those sentiments, saying a public pronouncement right now wouldn't help de-escalate the situation. Vaccinations in the U.S. moving along in big numbers. More than 4 million teenagers have now received at least one shot. Dr. Anthony Fauci feeling confident we won't hit a third wave if 75% of the population is vaccinated. Meanwhile, the debate over masks heating up in different parts of the country. Lorraine Caceres has the latest. The head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention marking Monday as a landmark day in the fight against the coronavirus, announcing more than 4 million teens between the ages of 12 to 17 years old have gotten their first vaccine dose, and more than half of all adults have received at least one dose. 
we need to continue to ensure vaccination coverage is uniform across the country. This will require us to meet people where they are, to listen to their concerns, and to help people make informed decisions about vaccination. Health officials are now targeting rural communities where vaccinations are lagging. About 60 million Americans live in rural communities. We are definitely meeting people where they are, sending vaccine doses directly to communities that have been the hardest hit, including sending a greater number of vaccines to rural health clinics. And FEMA is shifting their focus to smaller community-based sites and pop-up clinics. If you vaccinate the overwhelming majority of the population, you're not going to get a third wave, guaranteed. If you vaccinate 75% of your population, you may get cases, but you're not going to get a big wave. Regarding kids under 12, Dr. Anthony Fauci saying vaccinations will definitely not happen until next year. By the time we get to the end of this calendar year and the first quarter of 2022, that we will have enough information regarding safety and immunogenicity to be able to vaccinate children of any age. But with cases down and vaccinations growing in Florida, Miami-Dade County, the fourth largest school district in the country, already announcing masks will be optional for all students starting in the fall. In Texas, the governor also making masks optional in schools and mandating $1,000 fines for local officials who implement mask orders. You don't run the city of Houston and the city employees in the city facilities. The mayor does. Meanwhile, in D.C., on the House floor, the debate over masks intensifying. Republicans now pushing back on the existing mask rule, saying it's more politics than science. Some, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, fined $500 Tuesday for not wearing one. Madam Speaker, if the issue that the majority has with reopening is related to vaccinations, I understand the majority claims that their side is 100% vaccinated. And I would just say that if that is the case, science says that they have nothing to worry about coming to the House floor or being in public. Uh, but that's not what this is all about. This is about the speaker holding on to her slim and tenuous majority by any means necessary, even if weaponizing the House rules to do so. And as more cities around the country move towards normalcy, New York City is announcing that masks will no longer be required indoors. And also Chicago announcing that the Lollapalooza Music Festival is back this summer, but attendees are going to have to provide proof that they have been vaccinated and fully inoculated, or they would have to provide a negative COVID test for every day of the festival that they plan to attend. That's all the information we have right now. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. And in California, farm workers continue to face huge risks when it comes to COVID-19 and other dangers. Now, as Ana de Mendoza explains, advocates are trying to get the word out about new assistance for one of that state's most difficult jobs. Farm work is an incredibly difficult job. Andrea Cabrera has worked in the sector for decades and says the pandemic has been extra challenging for the approximately 800,000 farm workers in California. Many are afraid. They are afraid to get vaccinated because of the myths. Activists say farm workers continue to get infected and have launched a campaign to inform them of their rights since California extended the 80 hours of paid sick time if they get infected with COVID-19 through September. If they or someone in their family gets infected, they are entitled to these extra hours. The group goes out and brings the information to different farms in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties in Spanish, English and Mixteco, an indigenous language. 
It is retroactive. If you get sick between January 1st and March 28th, you have the right to be paid the 80 hours. The California State Labor Commission has provided the group with this truck to make the information more visible. Reported by Luce Castellanos in Santa Barbara County, California. Ana de Mendoza, U News. And closer to home in Latin America, some major news coming in. Jesus Santrich, one of the most prominent leaders of a group of Colombia's former FARC rebels who rejected a 2016 peace accord, has been killed in Venezuela in an operation by Colombia's military. That news coming from several sources. The New York Times saying that Venezuela confirmed Santrich's death, while CNN is reporting that former FARC dissidents first disclosed the news. According to that second account, Santrich was traveling by truck in Venezuela when he was attacked by Colombian commandos. Santrich, who initially back the 2016 peace deal was wanted by the United States on drug trafficking charges and had long been thought to be based in Venezuela. And closer to home in Latin America, clashes between police and protesters left at least one dead and 30 injured on Monday in Yumbo, Colombia. Local media also reported on a strong explosion recorded near a fuel storage station. Colombian demonstrators have built road blockades and expect more violence to come. Colombia has been hit by a wave of protests since late April, with riot police wielding tear gas and stun grenades clashed with crowds, sometimes fatally, in many of the country's biggest cities. Now let's go to El Salvador. Allies of President Nayib Bukele have been included in a list of senior officials in Central America deemed corrupt by the U.S. State Department. Among those are on the list Bukele's cabinet chief, his former minister of security and justice, and a lawmaker. According to a report reviewed to the Associated Press, the emergence of the list of allegedly five corrupt officials is likely to heighten tensions with Bukele, who is facing intense pressure from the Biden administration over the removal of several Supreme Court justices and El Salvador's attorney general. Joining me now to discuss all this is Jeff Thale, president at the Washington office on Latin America. Jeff, welcome to New News. What was your reaction Thanks. to this report? Uh, it's a very striking report. Uh, first of all, this was put together a month ago and only declassified yesterday. Declassifying and listing those names is clearly a strong signal from the United States of its efforts to put pressure on those close to President Bukele. Uh, around issues of corruption and to push back around what the steps he took several weeks ago now to fire Supreme Court justices and the attorney general. With the White House trying to address the root cause of migration from Central America and places like El Salvador, how will this impact relations with the Biden administration right now? Well, I think it's already increased tensions. I mean, President Bukele certainly has carved out a reputation for himself as um, a stand-up guy. And yesterday he said um, he announced uh, new deals uh, for Chinese investment. I think it's clear sort of playing the China card in response to the United States. Whether So I don't know that that's really going to be effective over the midterm. I mean, the United States has strong commercial relations, strong ties because so many Salvadorans are here. So I don't know that President Bukele is going to be effective of that. And I think it's going to take some time to see how this dynamic plays out. But I think it's what we've seen clearly is that while President Bukele is defiant, the U.S. is beginning to move from tough talk to looking at concrete actions. 
Bukele won the presidency by a landslide, and as we yes, just noted, he recently fired several Supreme Court justices along with his attorney general. What do you think his political agenda is here? Well, that's a good question. Um, while President Bukele historically came from the a party of the left, he split from it. He won office, uh, sort of defying all the traditional political parties. He's done a number of populist things, particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, but I'm not sure what the president's real political and economic agenda is beyond what I think is clearly an effort to centralize power in his own hands and to go after his critics. And that's pretty troubling. Are sanctions something the U.S. may consider against El Salvador? I think that, well, it's clear they're going to consider sanctions, specific sanctions, so visa denials, freezing of U.S. bank accounts, and so on, against the officials who were just named in this report. Um, beyond that, I don't think the United States is interested in hurting the Salvadoran people or making the situation in El Salvador worse so that more people feel compelled to migrate. But I do think it's looking for ways to use a mixture of both carrots and sticks to encourage President Bukele to return to um, the rule of law and the separation of powers. After the end of its bloody civil war, El Salvador has endured decades of corrupt leaders. Is Bukele providing hope for a better El Salvador or is history just starting yes, to repeat itself? I think President Bukele has really tried to frame himself as an alternative to the corrupt leaders of the past. Honestly speaking, uh, I'm troubled by these corruption allegations and the fact that people in both from the last two governments, which he attacked, and the current government are being accused now of corruption and involvement in drug trafficking. So it's not clear to me that Bukele is really going to set the country on a new path. Thank you so much for your time today. Jeff Thale, president of the Washington Office on Latin America. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. It's time to leave. Aboard the ferry, over 50 people are getting ready for a very special encounter. This is happening only 15 minutes away from the New York Harbor, once you head out into the Atlantic Ocean. With a little bit of patience, dozens of dolphins emerge from the water, only a few feet away from the surprise passengers. All these years of environmental efforts are starting to pay off now, and we're seeing a huge resurgence in whales, especially humpback whales, in this past 10 years or so. The tour guide says that on 94% of the trips off the coast of New York, you will see humpback whales, a mammal that is now a protected species after being on the edge of extinction. Yeah. There are also playful dolphins playing around in groups visible throughout the visit. I really wanted to see the whales and give them a hug, says this little girl. 
but she's disappointed that she didn't spot a humpback. Even though we couldn't see them personally this time, the trip includes other attractions, like going around the Statue of Liberty and going under the popular New York City bridges. Kids should know their surroundings, the nature, so they can learn how to appreciate it and take care of it, says this mother. The tour lasts three hours and it just started this week, but it will run three times a week until November. In New York City, Fabiola Galindo, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.